this is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. Yeah, so, uh, Cesare, this is your recommendation? Yeah. I, I believe? Quite the, uh, quite the, uh, quite the, quite the book. Uh, I was trying to actually figure out how to introduce it because it's not, not, uh, I think a part of the book is actually figuring out exactly what's going on in this plot. I just wanted to mention about, like, Nabokov because I was so interested by this guy. I read his autobiography, Speak Memory, as well. And he lived quite a crazy life, um, this guy was born in a noble family in Russia in 1899, and just like filthy rich, I think it's mentioned that he had an estate with uh, 50 employees on it. And, like he learned his first language was like French and English and Russian. He had individual tutors, like a really gifted guy. His father was in uh, Parliament, uh, liberal wing of the Parliament. And eventually, when the revolution came, he had to escape, and he went to Cambridge. And his father was even assassinated assassinated by a, uh, I guess a, uh, by a member. I don't know if it was a Bolshevik party or, or who it was, but eventually he went to, uh, like he just, he, he was an expatriate in Berlin just before World War II, at which point he escaped to, uh, to Paris and then he made it to, uh, the States in 1940. But, uh, one of his brothers even ended up dying in a concentration camp. Um, and then of course he taught at, uh, wow. he taught at, um, I believe it was Columbia. I think I'm mixing up the Ivy League school. But after he published Lolita and got uh, independently, uh, financially independent, then he uh, retired in Switzerland, where he eventually wrote this book, Pale Fire. But yeah, throughout his works, there's that uh, thread of his early experiences as, you know, um, really Russian nobility uh, into being an expatriate in a, in a foreign land. Which is quite interesting. On to Pale Fire, though. So, this... I, I'm just going to talk about what, uh, like, what the book is saying on the surface, and I think what our talk would be is trying to figure out exactly what happened or what we want to talk about, because I don't, I don't have any other way of introducing the book. Yeah, and rather uh, than anchor you with, like, a big responsibility, like, get this totally through in one go, you know, I feel um, like if anybody can, you know, jump in to flesh out a moment and, you know, you just work your way through as you see fit. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's in four parts. Uh, there's a foreword. Um, there's the actual poem named Pale Fire, written by a guy supposedly John Shade. Commentary after it, which is the main meat of the book. That's perfectly written by uh, a guy named Charles Kimbate. And finally, there's an index, which actually I just realized today because I didn't pay much attention to the index, but apparently there's uh, clues and things you can find in the index that enlighten the story. So in the f- in the foreword, which is brief, we are introduced to a character, Charles Kimbate, and right away it seems that something's off. Uh, rather than your typical literary foreword where they're praising the author or introducing the work, he's more focusing on how he actually got uh, possession of the poem, how, you know, uh, he's the one true person that should be interpreting this poem. Uh, you find out that he's in a motel room having escaped with the poem and he's complaining about the noise. Um, 
And he has, uh, gives other weird hints, like he has a special friendship with the author John Shade, and uh, that apparently surpasses uh, overt signs of friendship. <laughs> on to the poem, which is 999 lines, which uh, on its surface is John Shade um, exploring death, uh, life. Uh, in the middle of the poem, line 500, you find out that his only child who uh, we are led to to believe is somewhat uh, maybe ugly or overweight. Um, commits suicide because she was um, left hanging at a bar on a on a blind date. Uh, he talks about a heart attack that he had earlier, a search for meaning. He tracks down uh, another person who had a near death experience, thinking that they shared something in common because he remembers seeing a white fountain. And after a you know comically large or comically long search to find her finds out that it was in fact a misprint and she saw a white mountain not a white fountain um onwards to the commentary so on the surface the poem was really very introspective about john shade's life and uh his wife his child death life but what charles combate the guy in the forward does is he takes that poem and in, within the with with the commentary for 200 pages, he really turns this poem into something completely unexpected. Something that I mean, I don't think it would be possible to do without uh, to to come up to the conclusions he does without this actual commentary. He throws in uh, Zembla, a purported kingdom, where I think we're led to believe he is the um, king of this of this territory, and he throws. Its history and its revolution and its aristocracy into every single line of this poem. Um, I mean, we're, we're let found we're led to believe that Zemla had a socialist revolution and that uh, the um, that this king was um, made to abdicate, but eventually he escaped through a secret tunnel that was in uh, that was used by his grandfather to cheat on an actress. Uh, you find out that he has like a he was married, but he was really a homosexual, and you know he couldn't help but keep cheating on his wife with uh, with men. Uh, you find out that when he does escape, that Zemblin's dressed uh, dressed up as him with a red hat and sweater to help him get away. Uh, you're led to believe that there's this secret organization that's out to kill him. Uh, Gradus is the name. Jacob Gradus is sent to kill him, and you're led on this path where uh, eventually it leads to. Uh, Kimbate and Shade at his house, and John Shade gets killed by, according to Kimbate, Gradus, but uh, in the story you're allowed to believe that is a mentally escaped patient, uh, Jack Gray, who is trying to shoot the judge that committed him to a mental, in- mental institution, uh, and really you're left at the end of the book with Charles Kimbate finishing his commentary in a motel room, uh, thinking about if the, uh, like who's next? Who's going to be sent next to kill him? Who he reveals himself to be the the king of Zembla, and that's I think the 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 structure of the book and really what happens throughout it. And we're really left to pick up the pieces and sort of do a reverse mystery hunt for what actually happened, who's telling the truth, who's the author, uh, and everything else that this book leaves us with. <laughs> well done, Cesare. The only other thing I, I was mentioned is there was heavily mirroring uh, between Kimbate's account of his life and the the sort of surface that were shown in John Shade's poem and John Shade's life. There's 
crown jewels that are missing from Zembla, and there's the poem that's sort of missing and uh, being sought after. There's the death of both par- John Shade's parents and the death of both Charles's parents. There's a psychial tra- trauma at a young age for both of them, you know, fainting spells for John Shade when he was 11. And there was um, uh, Charles Kimbate, or Charles Xavier, the beloved, the king, uh, found a photograph of his father, uh, an aviator who died uh, in a plane crash that traumatized him at a young age. There's uh, two Russian agents that are searching for the jewels, and there's two professors that are tormenting Kimbate, and, and on and on. You didn't mention how funny it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, I guess this is something we could talk about, but like Nabokov does, I think, such an extremely good job at giving life to these characters. I mean, um, in the commentary, Charles Kimbate really becomes so alive, such a insane, like, eloquent character. Um really unique in that sense. I don't think you can forget Charles Kimbate after this. And that's one of the things maybe Nabokov is doing, is he always lures you in with this very, uh, I don't know, I want to say adroit character, and then after the fact, you kind of wake up to the fact, this something ain't right here, this is not quite a, a mortal person you're supposed to side and empathize with. Yeah. I will say right off the bat that, interestingly, I have a fairly good vocabulary, and I looked up more words reading this book. Uh, same and here. The best part was same that here. A, a goodly portion of them were words that, that he obviously made up. <laughs> I know. So that was fun. That was like, hmm, I wonder if this Many times there's really like no definition. Sorry? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Many times when I would highlight a word, I would get no definition. Well, actually, some of the words that would say no definition in the Kindle actually do have definitions, but um, but a lot of them didn't. <laughs> I know. Oh, I thought that that was super fun. A favorite one I learned was to inveigle. Mm, inveigle's a good word. Which is to, persu- to persuade someone to do something by means of deception or flattery. <laughs> cool. Yeah. There was one I didn't look up. It was... Farago, F-A-R-R-A-G-O. Something was a Farago of evil. Yeah, I had to look that one up too. I already forgot. Do you remember what it was? Conf- oh yeah, I, I, a confused I, mixture. <laughs> a confused mixture. Yeah. I, at the, on my first reads through, I, I try not to look up too much. I always like underline the word, but um, I get so caught up in doing that. I have uh, about just a notebook nearly of words whenever I read through Blood Meridian that I was just like highlighting through. And I love it to find it in new authors, um, whenever, especially when they make up words. You find that in the poem, but then also in the uh, narrative and the foreword and afterwards. Yeah. I thought the most interesting one was Greatest. Greatest, a manual of classical prosody formerly used in schools to help in writing Greek and Latin verse. Wow. So yeah. Greatest was something that you used to help you compose poetry. His name might as well have been MacGuffin. And he... So I don't know. I just, I was just, like, that made my... I have to say that I haven't felt quite as dumb in a long time as I have, as I did reading this book. I'd, like, I'd, I'd read something and say, oh, God, he means so much more here than I'm getting out of it. <laughs> it's like, I can't wait to talk to everybody about it because I feel so clueless right now. Because I'd feel like, oh, right. And I'd, I'd like, have this little burst of you know this little idea like oh this is what he means and then i'd read on a few lines and go maybe that was what he meant (laughs) i think he means a lot more than that i think he's he's leading me on a merry chase that's how i felt merrily chasing i have a question though about the main the character kimbote it's fascinating to me how the majority of this 
book is um, in his voice and really is engineered by him and he's so amazingly unlikable. I liked him. <laughs> oh yeah? Yeah, but I always like I like crazy people all the yeah. time. Uh-huh. I mean he was he was so clearly deluded in how he perceived re- how he commented on reality and what actually happened. Um you're but but he was interesting, right? You wanted to one of the the things yeah, that it was interesting. books made you want you wanted to hear about Kimbate. You didn't care about, you know, this old pudgy poet. Um I wanted to know more about how, interestingly, since it was, you know, all was given, there were very few clues I felt that told you how annoying he was (laughs) to John Shade. Every once in a while, like his, he would be oblivious. You'd read something and go, oh, he's obviously oblivious to what Shade is um, saying to him or, or feeling right now. But he had no problem, you know, making him like showing you that, everybody else thought he was a nuisance and a jerk and you know what I mean or not everybody else but uh, you know I, I found that very interesting that you couldn't really well at the tell. beginning he says he found a pride that was like a venom uh, whenever he realized that John Shade prized his company above all the others and so whether he was like that to everybody else and I mean, that's what you're saying like he, he openly shows you that he was still an intimate of John Shade he was flattered by that and you know relished the yeah Shade um, didn't the time together yeah, you know, and I wonder, like, it, was it just some, like, really uncomfortable thing? Like, J- Shade was, um, uh, oh, what's the word I want? Basically putting up with him. Um, but I wondered. Tolerate, tolerating That's it, him. that's the word. Sorry, boy. I can't, I came up with greatest, but I can't think of tolerate. <laughs> um, yeah. But I wondered if he, you know, if this was a, did he consciously not put in the things that would have shown that he was annoying did Shade actually like him? I think so. I, I I mean, his wife certainly didn't, or maybe had a distrust of him or something, you know, and he, he kind of considered her the foil to their friendship. You know, he's like, oh, I thought we were going to hang out and go for a walk. And she's like, actually, he was reading me his poem. And he was like, yeah, I, I thought he never shared his poems. I, you know, not even. And, <laughs> and then, you know, goes on to talk about how. Uh, you know, he's been feeding him all of this story of uh, his homeland and how it's not in there. And like, I, I'm so surprised, like I'm giving him all this material. At the same time, he, you know, does at least say we don't have Shade's account, but he's like, you know, recalls Shade saying, oh, yeah, tell me more about that. Like, he does seem interested. And it's almost like he's Shade is entertaining this wild friend as a muse while he's writing, as well as using his uh, wife as an editor. And um, Total creep. I have a... And I mean... And like as a a line here that I have at location 191, it's not page 191. I don't know why they've set it up this way. But it says here from Kambote, almost every evening I could see the poet's slippered foot gently rocking. Now, he's in his house. I was reading that line, Mary. This is the minor. This is the minor stuff. Um, But he's looking at into the uh, window of Shade's office or wherever he's working his den. He says, and he's watching the poet's slippered foot gently rocking. One inferred from it that he was sitting with a book in a low chair, but one never managed to glimpse more than that foot and its shadow moving up and down to the secret rhythm of mental absorption. Creep. That's page 17. Okay, creep. Yeah. I mean, that. that I was like, this is the, the mind, this is the actions of a stalker. But it's 
funny how he overtly says it and doesn't seem to feel any, like, if I was describing me uh, spying on people for months on end and following them around, I'd feel some, you know, embarrassment at ha- having done that, and he seems to be free and easy about it and just describes no, it, I, and that's one of my points in how he's... He's divorced from reality. He's divorced from reality, yeah. Well, you're not a king, are you? I have a line here on... This is right. Yeah, I have a line here on page 15 <laughs> that I thought was hilarious. Um, it says, His Lasonic suggestion that I try the pork amused me. I am a strict vegetarian and like to cook my own meals. Consuming something that had been handled by a fellow creature was, I explained to the Rubicon convives, as repulsive to me as eating any creature, and that would include, lowering my voice, the pulpous ponytailed girl student who served us and licked her pencil. Moreover, I had already finished the fruit brought with me in my briefcase so I could would content myself, I said, with a bottle of good college ale. My free and simple demeanor set everybody at ease. <laughs> I love how he thinks like he, he was successful <laughs> in being like a kidding dude when he was probably the most awkward person ever. <laughs> and the room probably... I like the part right after that too where he talks about uh, the difference between him and Shay. I think it's right after that. And how Shade wouldn't, uh, he didn't like vegetables, and the way he phrases that was just as good. <laughs> it was something about, uh, he always had to steal himself to attack the fortress of an apple, or something like that. And, uh, oh, right. Or eating right. a salad was like dipping into a cold stream, or something to that effect. Yeah, there's uh, something he says on 13, um, this is about their friendship. The calendar says I had known him only for a few months, but there exist friendships which develop their own inner duration, their own eons of transparent time, independent of rotating malicious music. And there's, I think, also what um, people, uh, this is at least his internal justification or drive, I think, and this is 12, just the page before. Such hearts, such brains would be unable to comprehend that one's attachment to a masterpiece, um, his of John Shades, may be utterly overwhelming especially when it is the underside of the weave that entrances the beholder and only the getter. And this is where the selfishness comes out, whose own past intercoils there with the fate of the innocent author. So this is all told as also a sublime guilt, you know, and I think that maybe John Shade is more um, close to his bosom now since he's passed um, in these recollections. Yeah, and it's very, there are plenty of reasons to be skeptical in many places about the verity of what he says about Shade and what he says about himself. And there's a lot of contradictions when you start to look closely at the details. And there's a lot of places where you're left sort of uh, tantalizingly, you know, you know, they're just open-ended for you, uh, you know, where inference is sort of begged for and, but you're not, you know, totally given uh, the grounds to make uh, maybe a really hard and fast judgment, it's sort of up to you, which is sort of part and parcel for the whole book, right? I mean, there's so many questions to answer about trying to cohere these accounts into a whole and what that reading would be. And, you know, the question of uh, who is the real author sort of hangs over everything. Yeah, there's uh, one more thing I wanted to add. It's his, This is his highlight of John Shade. He says, John Shade, uh, this is page 20. And this is, I think, whenever we, like, I agree that it's creepy in one aspect. And the other, I see it as, like, utter respect and admiration that borders on sweetness. Um, and this is where I think that, that comes from. He says, uh, I'm looking at him. I'm witnessing a unique physiological phenomenon. 
John Shade perceiving and transforming the world, taking it in and taking it apart, recombining its elements in the very process of storing them up so as to produce at some unspecified date an organic miracle, a fusion of image and music, a line of verse. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. I, I, I need to, uh, I want to add to that <clears throat> from page 25. Um, his misshapen body, that gray mop of abundant hair, the yellow nails of his pudgy fingers, the bags under his lusterless eyes, were only intelligible if regarded as the waste products eliminated from his intrinsic self by the same forces of perfection which purified and, ch- and chiseled his verse. He was his own cancellation. Oh, so good. That's a great yeah, line. I had that one highlighted so as well. So beautiful. Yeah, and but I thought that it was. Um, I thought that it was interesting because he, I mean, this was written in the 50s. He made a, there's a lot made of his homosexuality and his, and he obviously um, has great love and adoration for the male form. And so I thought that it was interesting that this person whom he idolized was unattractive, but, but he was more attracted to him than anyone ever I mean it obviously wasn't a sexual thing it was more of a I have no idea it was a mania um but I thought that it was interesting and probably important for him uh for uh Nabokov to have made shade physically unattractive that the you know this was just that it was his love for him was completely separate from anything that would, you know, and of course in the 50s, homosexuality would be a whatever, degrading or something like that, so That is interesting I don't know if I picked up on that Yeah, there's so many ways you can analyze this book and take it in in, um, in reading secondary sources, there's an entire like 10 page essay on this being response to Freudian psychoanalysis, and uh, Nabokov continually like hated and always put like had digs at Freud, including in this novel. And uh, just one of the interesting things I I read, and I don't know enough about Freudian psychoanalysis to know if this is true or not, is that uh, Nabokov set up Charles Kimbate or Charles Xavier as a homosexual with a persecution syndrome of paranoia, which apparently was a category that Freud thought impossible. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I'm glad you say that. I yeah. wanted to ask you specifically, since you, I knew you'd read the biography about, uh, about that, because it seemed like there was false breadcrumbs all over this that sort of begged for those Freudian and, uh, and Marxist as well. I wanted to ask you about that. Those two readings, those huge schools of uh, literary criticism. Um, I read that he had aversions to both and, and really any sort of systematizing, generalizing, uh, form of critique. Um, he hated things, uh, reduced to the biographies of the author. And he was just sort of a radical particularist. He, he wanted, uh, everything taken on its own terms from what I understood. Well, words are funny, yeah, right? I'm oh, sorry. I just wanted to throw in that it's, just, I, I, no, go ahead. Go you ahead. know, when you go, when you look at a painting or you look at a photograph or, or some other work of art, you go and see a movie, you normally don't break down the creator's life so completely in in your analysis of it and yeah you can say okay well whatever Pablo Picasso was never called an asshole or something like that but it's different you don't we normally don't use their lives um, 
as analysis as intently as we do with books and I think that that's because we're all so you know language we're all so close to language we all we have it integrated so entirely into our lives so that was all I wanted to throw in there but please go ahead Cesare no I think um yeah he hated simple explanations and things being turned into easy symbols and easily digestible um information here's a a quote I have from actually pale fire I don't know where it is because I got it from secondary literature, but it says, um, we are absurdly, absurdly accustomed to the miracle of a few written signs being able to contain immortal imagery, involutions of thought, new worlds with live people, speaking, weeping, laughing. We take it for granted so simply that in a sense, by the very act of brutish routine acceptance, we undo the work of the ages, the history of the gradual elaboration of poetical description and construction. From the tree man to Browning, from the caveman to Keats, what if we awoke one day, all of us, and find ourselves utterly unable to read? I wish you to grasp not only at what you read, but at the miracle of its being readable. So I used to tell my students. Wow, yeah, that's really generous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, th- I think like by this very book, this is not a book. I mean, you can read. I read it from front to back, and. I think Nabokov expected this to be read and reread Absolutely. and read out of order and like it's 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 its own world this this thing right you can you can get lost into it and go from the poem to the footnotes to the back to the poem to commentary to the index I think Kambata extorts us in the foreword to he says that this should be read side by side with the commentary. He tells us to read the commentary first. He in fact tells us that you know what it'd be easier if you just bought two <laughs> copies of the book <laughs> side by side. Right. <laughs> true. I, I loved the index. I had a great time reading the index. I thought, oh my god, I loved what he chose to include. <laughs> All those little moments. Well, and just before we talk about the index, there's also that little bit he says right after all that, which is that that probably is not what uh, Shade would want. He would just want you to be able to take the poem on its own. So As would Nabokov. Yeah. So anyway, anyway yeah, there is all this uh, around it, which forms the, the full basis um, and the index. One of the things that I thought made it work so well and the, the trick of dual authorship or this sort of uh, scattered narrative uh i don't know how well it would have worked if the perfection in style hadn't just been so absolute the voices of these two characters were so distinct and authentic and for a russian-born writer to have sort of mastered an american poetic voice in the way that he did with john shade was really really impressive to me i i read that it was um there's a lot of alexander pope in there but for me it really sounded like Robert Frost a lot, who I think is mentioned at one point during the book too. But uh, I just, I, I was very, you know, these they're, they're such distinct characters. And to put them side by side, I mean, and just have that, uh, you know, there are so many authors who are criticized for not being able to do that, you know, for characters that you can't believe in and for their own sort of voice over the course of a few novels becoming a bit typecast and, you know, sort of bleeding across characters to where you sort of, it undermines character in a way because they don't, they begin to not seem real. They just begin to seem like the author. And and I mean, I haven't read anything else by him, so I couldn't say for sure, but I mean, these guys definitely felt real to me. Yeah. 
You'll love Lolita if you haven't read it. You'll you've got something to live for. Something else to put on your right. list. Um, it's a gorgeous book. There's a way in which the language, I think, it was like dense in the way that, like you, we mentioned, you had to look up a lot of words. But I think it really worked in bringing the people alive. Uh, and as we, I think we, compl- someone complained. I complained about John Gardner's. Um, prose in the last book we read being flowery but almost in the sense that it's just showing off what he can do with language in the sense that i think in pale fire i think it really breathes life into the characters he's trying to uh to create through his words <laughs> yeah i would totally agree it felt like the difference between like a master yeah. working and something that came out of a yeah, literary workshop absolutely like it's like you're hitting yeah. all the points but there's something about it that's not quite you know well, because the lifting off yeah the his use of language was him that was you know that he, that was the very essence of his being was that you know were his turns of phrase they were yeah. grand you know <laughs> yeah, I mean, i'm sorry I, I, some I of them were so funny like... i would just screech laughing and and then I just like when I when I wanted to write about them, when I wanted to sit down and write a little note, what I thought I would just like I'd have nothing to say. <laughs> I'm just like I would write something like you know really pithy, like wow, <laughs> <laughs> like really, that's all I get out of this. But I was so delighted. Well, some who was it that sent the email about that the poem had been published on its own before? Oh, I, yeah, I that absolutely was a, felt like the public. That was a New Yorker. Yeah, it was a New Yorker. That's great. It's a New Yorker article about an old. Yeah, I guess that that was 2011. They, but did you see the treatment that they gave it? I mean, it's incredibly no, fancy. That the very. Yeah, it's it's a you know it's in pieces. You know there there are there are parts to the book. You open up a little folio and and also didn't they recreate the uh, the um, index cards? I, oh, yeah, wow. I think they did, yeah. and I think that there yeah. are pictures of the butterflies that mm-hmm. are mentioned and some of the birds and right. Wow. So, what did you all think of? I mean, the poem on its own and the commentary in relation to it, uh, the authors, if it mattered at all. There's, a, I mean, I feel a whole part of the secondary literature is just dealing with who wrote what. Was John Shade a real person? Did Kimbate write Shade? Did Shade write Kimbate? Were they two separate people? Was it all Nabokov? Right. I actually had a favorite line in the, like, I actually had a part of the poem that I really liked. Which was? Uh, it's right It's right after he makes his pun, a syllogism. Which canto, which canto oh. was it in? Uh, it's on page 40. Um, I think that it's the third uh, a syllogism, other men die, but I am not another, therefore I'll not die. So it's just after that. He says, space is a swarming in the eyes, and time a singing in the stars. In this hive I'm locked up, yet if prior to life we had been able to imagine life, what mad, impossible, unutterably weird, wonderful nonsense it might have appeared. And I thought... Right. Oh, great. I've had moments in my life when I've thought that that same thing. <laughs> wow, if I knew it was going to happen, maybe I wouldn't have come. <laughs> wouldn't have shown up. I might not have shown up to this party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a... Can we do what? In the same canto, there's this uh, reflection on life and death. And he, there's this uh, phrase, IPH, or if, and it's the lay institute of preparation for the hereafter. 
And then uh, just a little bit down, it's if was a larvorium and a violet, which I didn't look it up, but I take larvorium to be like a larva um, or anyway, something maybe dead. But he said a grave in reason's early spring. And yet it missed the gist of the whole thing. It missed what mostly interests the preterist. For we die every day, oblivion thrives, not on dry thigh bones, but on on blood-ripe lives. And that blood-ripe lives. Oblivion to, yeah, I mean, right. It was just, I don't know. Like, amazing poetry. It's yeah. amazing. Along with, you know, having, you know, an ambling, you know, character at the beginning that sounds like somebody, but to be able to pull it together and to have this range within an author is fascinating to me. As I understand it, it was um, from, I mean, I read that from his son, Dmitry uh, Nabokov, that, that his father intended for the poem to re- be read in and of itself, like separate. Yeah, well, here, I'll, I'll make this confession. Whenever we were reading this, um, I was like, oh, well, it's a poem, I'll knock it out. I picked it up, and I just went through uh, the introduction. I was like, ah, I forget that. No, I don't read the forewords. I read the poem, and then flipped to the back, and I was like, oh, wait, this is, oh, whoa. Okay, yeah. this is a whole thing. And Thanks. then I read the foreword, and then I started getting through the notes, and I only got through about half of the notes or the commentary. Well, I mean, it. it I, I remember... Mary, you mentioned that you wish you had made, you wanted to make like a um, chart of how he bounces us all over, bounces us all over the place. This note to this, this note to that, see this, see that. And after a while, I don't know how everybody else felt, but after a while, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Okay. And, um, and, you know, I think that's another thing that I read too, as well, that, that it, it's, it was expected by Nabokov or urged that it be reread, not just read, read linearly and then not linearly as well. Like this is, and in a way I started feeling like this is not just a book. It's like this experience that's surrounding me, you know, three-dimensionally surrounding me because, I mean, maybe that was the sense I got because he was bouncing us all over the place in, in regarding the notes and in the commentary. Um, but because I would bounce to, it would say, well, see the notes to blah, blah. And I was like, and I would go to it and I was like, wait, I read this already, you know? And, and so again, in one way, doing that kind of cut up the power of a linear read, but then I'm wondering why, what was the point of it not being a linear read? Yeah. Cause he could you know? have, uh, he could have done it annotated style, right? Where you had the, the notes on one side of a page and then the poem on the other so that you def you had embedded within the poem all of the notes as well. Um, exactly. So if we think about the intention, first of all, that that uh, from what I read, obviously, and fr- from his son, that he that Nabokov expected and wanted you to read the poem alone, separate in and of itself. But then, why did he introduce this mystery? This this uh, this man who was obsessed with the writer of the poem. I mean, what, 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 and again, and, and the whole Shakespearean aspect to it, which I know you and I kind of touched on, Daniel, in email. Um, I mean, I, I even read some secondary source that said this was Nabokov's, uh, this book is Nabokov's Shakespearean play, Shakespearean effort. Yeah, that was the uh, Observer article, right? Yeah, Mentioned the that? Observer article, right, right. I guess we, we might... Uh... I think we'd do well to quote what uh, Pale Fire was um, taken from, and it was Timon of Athens, right? And the right. That's does he discuss that in the forward? 
I mean, I know it's in the play, but does Kimbote... Kimbote says he can't find it, but he mentions he has a copy of Timon of Athens. So he doesn't quote the passage at length, but uh, I think it's... No, he paraphrases it and says that um, he remembers it, but he doesn't have it at hand because he's been traveling or something. Yeah. Yeah, it gets... (laughs) He's been fleeing again. He's fleeing. Yeah, yeah, from Comnol. It gets more complicated. Yeah, it's a Comnol translation. Uh, the Zemblin scholar who eventually urges him to teach, uh, and he disguises himself to be a teacher. But anyways, the line is, um, I'll example you of thievery, the son's a thief, and with this, his great attraction robs the vast sea. The moon's an errant thief, and her pale fires she snatches from the sun. The sea's a thief, whose liquid surge resolves the moon into salt tears. The earth's a thief, that feeds and breeds by composture stolen from general excrement, each thing's a thief. I love that line, by the way. I love that passage. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's these two parts that are... And it are, makes yeah. perfect sense, right? Two, yeah, it's these two parts that are both... Um, Everyone's yeah, just, thieving. Yeah, thieving, really. Yeah, um, Kimbote's stealing Shade's fire, but Shade's poem is made alive by Kimbote's commentary. Uh, it's really wonderful in that regard. I don't know. I mean, Laura, you were talking before about, you know, the confusion in in reading it linearly linearly, and then, you know, reading it non-linearly hyper (laughs) using hyper jumps. Yeah. Um, I found that since I didn't have time, I I did a few of the hyper jumps and then I realized I wouldn't have time to do it both ways. So I was just going to read it linearly. And um, I thought like, the, the most interesting thing that happened, I think, in my head was that I'd be going along and there'd be a moment where I would, where something would come up and make me think, but but what about this? Because he's so detailed in his descriptions of his life as a child and what 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 all went on in Zembla, that when it, it kept occurring to me at the little moments that it, the whole thing was a fabrication and that would throw me back. That would that would really knock me off my feet. I'd be like, oh, no, I didn't want it to be a lie. <laughs> I wanted it. And then it would make me realize, like, this is amazing writing that he – this is so beautiful that, number one, that Nabokov had all of those, you know, could actually write the story about it. But that um, Kinbote created that world – what an amazing world to create like it's it's yeah i mean even the things like the guys knocking pieces in the walls you know all of that i just was i was shocked like over and over again that this that this character was creating the world Kimbote. yeah and then of course that nabokov created the novel right. and that's why I, i'm still i'm still amazed at the idea of what Nabokov's what Nabokov's goal was you know one uh, interpretation that I liked that I heard um, was that Shade sort of um, and this would go back to something Nathan was saying earlier about the reasons that he was kind to Kimbo and uh, that there was a sort of um, a, a he saw sort of reflected in in him his daughter and similar characteristics between them sort of inspired a kind of pity or a kind of sympathy for Kimbo, you know, as as sort of a, an oddball, as a dreamer, as sort of a, uh, you know, fancy sort of, um, you know, 
wingnut a little bit. Uh, if you there's interesting, I didn't see that at all. I didn't like. I didn't. I didn't think of that at all. But that's obviously a good. That's an interesting interpretation. And guys, is it Kinboat or Kinbote? You guys have been saying Kinbote so sad, but I'm probably wrong. But uh, so <laughs> correct me if I always pronounce everything wrong. So I'm just mimicking the audio <laughs> guy. No, you just pronounce Daniel, things Canadian. Did you, I was curious listening to you. Were you finished? Uh, well, I was just going to read this little bit from the poem about the character of um, Hazel, Hazel Shade. Right. Um, there's just a couple lines. It says uh, she had strange fears, strange fantasies, strange force of character as when she spent three nights investigating certain sounds and lights in an old barn she twisted words pot top spider red dips and powder was red wop she called you a didactic (laughs) and hardly smiled ever and when she did it was a sign of pain she'd criticize ferociously our projects and with eyes expressionless sit on her tumbled bed spreading her swollen feet scratching her head and he goes on and uh That uh, that's specifically that uh, she hardly ever smiled, and when she did, it was a sign of pain. I didn't I didn't really pick up on uh, sort of um, you're sort of overwhelmed by the you know Kimbo's fancy fantasies and his digressions and tangents um, at first, and I didn't pick up on the suffering quite so much. But there's definitely sort of this underlayer of uh, his uh, his suffering, I think, that comes out after a while. You mean because he pinpoints Hazel's suffering? Yeah, yeah, maybe that's, you know, something Shade recognized in him, you know. Inboat's notes definitely sort of betray, you know, little bits here and there that say he's he's in pain, he's he's uh he's suffering a bit, you know. It's just, there's the line at the very end where he just says, I mean, he's he's going through his commentary and you kind of forget that this is a ma- uh, like a a man writing in a hotel, like hiding oh God, from everybody, yeah. and he just says, "Dear Jesus, do something!" Out of nowhere, and it just—it's such a smack in the face that reminds you that Kimbate is just, yeah, a suffering being, like you, like you mentioned. I, I think at the beginning he's, he complains about the noise once that, like, um, he's in a motel and it's noisy out of yeah. nowhere, and then yeah. <laughs> I thought that very first um, bit in the foreword where he just like left turns into "Damn that music." <laughs> that was as effective as any enchantment I've ever read in a poem. Um, go ahead. Um, I, I, I did wonder when he was writing about Hazel. I, I thought about um, about the idea of uh, poetry being, you know, your poem, whatever it is that you're writing, being your child, and um, the kind of pain that that also. You know, anything that you create causes you suffering, right? At some point or another, at least. Um, and it brought to mind, it brought to mind Frankenstein a little bit. That I mean, there's a lot more pathos in, in this with the daughter. It's just it's so heart wrenching that she is just so miserable, um, and that they, they have so much pain for her. Um, but I also thought about you know, like took a step back and thought, okay, well here's a here's a poet. Um, and he is, he's got something to say about that, you know, about his creation. You mean shade? Yeah. Whoever's writing the poem. Yeah. Well, then that goes to the question, which we can sort of discuss about who in fact wrote this, because there's been a lot of debate over this over the years. Right. And, um, and I know some of it came up in some of the secondary stuff that I emailed everybody, but. But I mean, the question of 
I mean, we the idea of that it's one voice actually, and that Kambote is Shade and Shade is Kambote is kind of stupid. So I think that was thrown out. But then there was the consideration that, um, what's her name, uh, Hazel, the ghost of Hazel, wrote this. I mean, that came up with an idea. Someone, I think that was a recent idea. I mean, I, it's. I think this is something that everybody has struggled with since he wrote this, and this was published. That um, who wrote who wrote this? The poem and who wrote these? I mean, the uh, commentary, but also why? Why? What is the goal of making this the way it is? Structuring this the way? Not only structuring it the way it is, but uh, some of the language, obviously, in the story. I mean. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, but I really can't stand this Kambote guy. So I have a. I, I mean, go ahead. Uh, I, I'll I'll give a case for one reading, which I kind of liked. I'm um, I really didn't care for the con. I was surprised that the main thrust of like the secondary literature I was reading dealt on the problem of who said what, which to me it didn't interest me if Kambote was a real person or not, or if it was sh- shade writing everything. But I was interested in the reading that it was in fact Shade that not only wrote the poem, but invented Kimbate and the commentary. And it revolved around the idea of him trying to make sense of his sort of drab, unextraordinary life, being, you know, a pudgy poet, not quite on par with Robert Frost, having to deal with his daughter's death, not being able to get through that in the way he expects through his poetry. He can't make sense of it. So what he does is he gets out of the bounds of his normal life, being, you know, a, this drab poet married to the same woman for 40 years, um, and he invents this extraordinary character, Kimbate, an exile, homosexual proclivities, sleeping around, um, incredibly elegant. Someone trying to come kill yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, that enables him to sort of process... Uh, extend the process of reality and imagination over and above what he can do with his life. There's a, there, there, I mean, and the book gives hints and comments on that. There's a uh, page 238, I believe. I'm not wrong, but when uh, Kimbate stumbles upon a cocktail party, a conversation between Mrs. H and Shade, uh, it said, that is the wrong word, he said. One should not apply it to a person who deliberately peels off a drab and unhappy past and replaces it with a brilliant invention. That's merely turning a new leaf with the left hand. So that could be applied to John Shade trying to get over his unhappy past of losing his daughter, or of course it could be applied to Kinbate trying to peel off the unhappy past of his exile, or, you know, the third reading of this is actually a crazy Botkin Russian professor who is trying to peel off his unhappy past and making an invention of all this. Yeah, and that all, and that analysis, Cesare, leaves me with totally not trusting anybody in this book, any of the characters, not trusting anybody or anything Well, I don't said. understand why... And then I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, what I... <laughs> I don't care that, like, I love the story so much. I didn't care if it was anybody but who they said it was. Do you know what I mean? Like some some guy who, came, you know, some Russian immigrant who came in and said, you know, and, and made up a life and followed John Shade around and stuff like that. I think it's interesting, but I didn't, like, I wasn't, I wasn't affected by it. I just kind of felt like, and I didn't read most of the secondary literature, but I didn't find myself really wondering 
too much about that stuff. Just think of it this way, though. When we're talking about Kimbate and how he's untrustworthy and how he's a lunatic and how we don't like him, that's kind of that's I don't think that's an extraordinary position. Right. I think we're met, we're thrust in that direction. Mm-hmm. And um, I have this great line here. I forget who it's written by, but the other's madness thus becomes a decisive proof and a guarantee of one's sanity. To dismiss Kimbate as insane and then to use him as a screen through which to uncover the real world of Botkin and UI is to read as he does, to interpret the text according to our need for self-validation and explanatory coherence. So it's almost, you know, a commentary on what reading is, on (laughs) what this act of reading is. It takes it up a level. Yeah, and as interesting as the story is, and I agree with you, Mary, it is very interesting, but I I was just constantly struck by... Why is it designed this way? Why was why did Nabokov structure it this way? The poem is brilliant. It's a brilliant poem. Why was there this huge commentary that became the novel written by not the man who wrote the poem? So I, I mean, I'm just really struck at, and so then I end up like like Cesare alluded to. I'm I end up not trusting anything anybody says in this book. Well, I definitely would agree that. I think the the whole is the thing, right? It's not the poem, it's not the commentary, it's those presented together. The the lecture I listened to um by one of these teaching company guys um was called Pale Fire Modern or Postmodern. And the distinction I saw there between those and this context and sort of my big heavy question about this book, which you know, I was gonna put to you guys was, you know, so it has to do like the importance of that mystery. Um, is it important then to get down to a truth about who is the sole author or, you know, is, you know, there a right way to read this or is it uh, a matter of sort of like Mary was saying, exploring the different narratives or the different perspectives and just taking each on its own and sort of, you know, the journey is the thing. And I, I see interesting things in both, views of it because on the one hand i kind of feel like you know in order to get the thrust the motivation to investigate i have to sort of think that there's a truth there to get to you know i have to have something that i'm i'm after in order to really appreciate it but then it's you know i can also see well if you want to stop and say you know there's beauty in just you know the creation of this fantasy that kimbo you know is 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 giving us and it's not you know about uh ferreting out a solid truth you know i can see that too yeah isn't that the postmodern thing that you that you eliminate the creator the author the painter you eliminate eliminate them from the work right that's one of them right so i mean okay so i'm fine with doing that but i'm still and and i'm fine with trying accepting and rolling with the way this book is set up but I, it keeps coming back to me, and I'm wondering if <clears> – sorry, I have to bring Nabokov back. I'm wondering if that was his point or his goal to make this really difficult, not difficult intellectually, but in a way logistically, bouncing us all over the place, making it a nonlinear read, or if making a linear read, making that a lesser read or even a greater read, if that was his goal. I mean, it, you know – it, it begs the question, because of the way it's structured, it begs the question right there, why is it this way? Why is it? And also, I remember reading about um, Gratis, the whole process that Gratis went through, the traveling and the 
difficulty, difficulties he had with the guys from the shadows and all of that. I'm like, well, where did he get this information? How did he know what what greatest um, uh, you know, uh, travel was if he was the victim, suppo- supposed to be the victim? But anyway, I'm back to my point is that it, it just the structure of it just really jumped out at me and bugs the shit out of me. A bit. <laughs> I thought it was just I don't know. I guess that I, I'm I didn't I haven't spent enough time thinking about it and I didn't read any of the secondary literature really. So I guess that my thought is it was just that it was brilliant and I haven't had time to kind of break it down yet. But I didn't um, and maybe it's because I haven't taken the time. It didn't bother me. It didn't bother me that it was you I mean, read it I linearly, read it more or less, yeah. And um, I was kind of delighted by every part of it. I didn't, I, I didn't ever feel like I needed to. And and maybe that was Nabokov's challenge, you know, give it to someone simple. <laughs> no, no. Maybe his challenge was if you're smart enough, read it linearly. Nab- Nabokov you know? also. I think Nabokov also had a real disdain for um, simple mysteries with a whodunit being the point of the reading. And an interesting take is that, you know, the mystery novel, the detective fiction, is us going through a process of tailing a criminal and getting to that criminal. Whereas this reverses the role, what Peril Fire does is it immediately shows us the criminal and the entire book is a process of the criminal greatest coming to us, right? Coming to John Shade and Kimbote and eventually killing one. Reverses the the direction of a mystery. <laughs> I wonder, do you think that has to do with the point he was making about all books or all reading? Or is it about this book specifically? Are you, you mean in terms of the structure and what his goal was? Well, in terms of the reader has to decide, and, and if your reading is going to be a matter of, um, you know, rather than uncovering, you know, some kind of whodunit or something like that, where there's this solid answer that you're going to get to with enough scrutiny, um, you know, is it a matter of finding a reading that you like and, you know, where your sympathies lie? And, you know, if you shift your stance a little, there's another perspective. I mean, that's a very, very postmodern. postmodern. Yeah. There's a, there's a bit in the novel. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> it was the first make your own adventure book. It could just be something that applies to this book or it could be something that I, you're trying to that. point out about, you know, the act of reading. Right. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. Literature because if you if you if you look at Mary's experience and my experience, hers was really wonderful and easygoing and enjoyable. And I was like, yeah, I enjoy this, but fuck, I gotta go over there now. Now I gotta go back over there, you know. <laughs> and so the experience logistically was annoying, but I obviously saw beautiful things. But I'm just saying, that's interesting that you say that, Daniel. Also, though, the I find the Kindle annoying. I find the uh, like I find the reading <laughs> process with the Kindle like the best thing about it is that I can see in you know in bed, um, which is why I use it. Um, I think that if I had a book, I might be more inclined to actually have skipped around a little bit. And the other thing about the Kindle is that I never really know where I am in the book, even though it'll tell you what percentage you are or how many hours. It's like, hey, yeah, you have no idea how fast I read. Um, <laughs> there is not there. It's not two hours left in the book. This is going to take me four days, you know. So, um, <laughs> so I'm I'm not I, I wasn't uh, anxious 
when it said that, you know, I was at, you know, whatever, note, whatever. the yeah. notes on 200 and it says go to, you know, the note on yeah, I don't think I can't. It just, I thought I'll be there soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> That's <know>. maturity. <laughs> well, that would be the only area of my life that it worked. Alrighty. <laughs> Nathan was going to say something before we missed it. We're way, where is Nathan? Yeah, I, I was just going to jump in with this conception of uh, the postmodern reading and how I think, you know, what the authorial intention was. I mean, generally, like short story, I think that you can't trust any of these characters, but you can trust all of the characters in total. I think that's kind of saying what Dan was saying about the sum total being uh, the, the prize work. And I was, uh, I'm going to stay in the text first, though Richard Rorty's introduction um, is really interesting. And it says something about, um, but I think the book says it better. So I'm going to quote from here. It's on 101 in the paper book that I have. Um, and this is just an example that uh, Xavier is giving in the notes or in the commentary. But I think that it proves a point that maybe the author's making. Anyway, here it is. Um, talking about the artist Einstein. But in some of those portraits, Einstein had also resorted to a weird form of trickery. Among his decorations of wood or wool, gold or velvet, he would insert one which was really made of the material elsewhere imitated by paint. This device, which was apparently meant to enhance the effect of his tactile and tonal values, had, however, something ignoble about it, and disclosed not only an essential flaw in Einstein's talent, but the basic fact that reality is neither the subject nor the ob object of true art, which creates its own special reality, having nothing to do with the average reality perceived by the communal eye. And to elaborate on what that kind of reality would mean, I think Rorty details it a little bit. Just He calls it dialectical relationships or dynamics between people, basically. Um, uh -huh. And he, he thinks that the meat and the heart of the story comes from the relationships of all of these people together, which has an emergent effect, which is the novel's value. Um, and, you know, what is the point of all of that? You know, I don't know that it can be said. Um, but I think that there's uh, a lot that we've been impressed by and a lot that it points to. And it's kind of this unraveling mystery. As a brief aside, I think that's just such a wonderful example of Nabokov being able to insert into this book his conception of art and reality in such a subtle way that doesn't require, you know, some character going on a pulpit and saying some flowery line. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I was really, really pleased with that line. It is. Yeah, the whole book is very much a performance, right? It's not, um, he's not lecturing to you, you know, these ideas. He's putting everything in this context and you are left to make sense of it. And I think, yeah, that in the forum, it's all in the forum, those relationships there that uh, Nathan was talking about. You know, you get these two guys sitting right next to each other who have these different interpretations of these same events. And, you know, we as readers are left to, to sort of make sense of them. And maybe, you know, that I, I think part of it, too, right, is he's got to be making some kind of comment about um, his own role as an author and, you know, any attempts to that might be made to solve this mystery by, you know, looking into his life and all of that. I mean, there've been a, a lot of those I read, right. you know, especially because he's got such a amazing life story. as Ari was telling us. I'll cheat a little and uh, just read a, a brief line from um, speak memory, which might elucidate this somewhat. It occurs to me that the closest reproduction of the mind's birth obtainable is the stab of wonder that accompanies the precise moment when Gazing at a tangle of twigs and leaves, one suddenly realizes that what had seemed a natural component of that tangle is a marvelously disguised insect or bird. 
think that adds to like looking at pale fire right you we can you can focus in on anything and it seems still and, and it seems like you can take it separately but once you start to untangle all these connections it starts to move on you like this insect or bird in a tangle of uh of woods that he describes here yeah some of the some of the things that i found most perplexing were when, like the names that he used for characters from zembla and i thought oh this is an allusion to x um or when things would just would line up perfectly like odin's mother being from new y is that right? Is that where, the, where it all takes place in New Wai? Yeah, New, New yeah. yeah, So New his, you know, the guy who saved him in his exile, who brought him into his exile and then basically saves him, his mom just so happens <laughs> to be in New Wai. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it's all, I don't know. That was the Christ. part where I felt like I really should be keeping, like I would like to have a little chart to to bring back all of the instances of his life that um, that fall into the story that, you know, conveniently make up this story of Zembla and being a king. And what is the thing also about being the king there? There's all sorts of, you know, there's lots of regicide. That's all well and good, but I, I, I did wonder about it quite a bit he could have been an exile from anywhere why did he make himself a king i i I thought that that was really interesting like even just the character being uh you know let's just say he actually exists and he's a guy who you know kimbo and he's just a nuts he's just a crazy guy now it's true that crazy people do often you know um I worked in an office in a dental office when I was much younger and someone came in with a with a and showed me his ID one time and it, he had uh, given himself the name Ubiquitous God. And when I told him that his name was redundant, he looked at me like I was crazy. But anyway, <laughs> hey, Ubi. Um but anyway, <laughs> I was kind sure. of fascinated by that. <laughs> he's he's religious. He's you know, he's religious. He's Super smart. He is um, fussy. You know, he, he he's he's neat, and um, but he'll go on these, you know, like going on the adventure to the party, <laughs> where he basically, I don't know, wakes up in some house, and you know, women are always disgusting, which you know is is another thing. But I just wondered, like, okay, so what is it about? I mean, is it just the obvious about kings, or is there something more to that? Well, it's a funny picture. Well, it's definitely in line with his sort of, you know, self-obsession and megalomania, right? I mean, everything, it's its very central to this character. It seemed like to me that, you know, that we understand that he's seeing everything in terms of like his own, his own self and his own lens on things. So it's like, it, and, and also, you know, there's the progression, right? Of, you know, he's not really, it's not, it's only sort of hinted at that he's the king at first, you know, if you're paying close attention, but as it's very explicit by the end, you know, it's like sort of, it shows this sort of downward spiral that he's on. That was really amazing to watch, to watch the progress, to, <laughs> to watch as he ascended the throne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, which is like the it the descent into his own madness is his ascension to the. But throne. then the guy who you know, uh, Gradus, is so disgusting. He is just like the most. I mean, if John Shade is his hero and unattractive, at least he's not just this big, you know. I mean, just the end and all of the you know intestinal issues. Let's say, I, I mean, the pulling the <laughs> pulling the sandwiches out of his out of his suitcase oh, that he had gotten in Paris. Wild. It was like oh my! It was and it was like <laughs> something that was close to ham. He said, it was "Like oh Jesus, what's close to ham that That's isn't scary. ham?" <laughs> like it's so disgusting. <laughs> So everything about him was, you know, he was stupid. <laughs> he was very unfashionable. He was just, a, he had no awareness he, and he wasn't interested. He made a big point of telling us about that, that he wasn't interested in the world. He read all the time, though. And so I found that interesting, too. It's like, ooh, okay, so we're all readers, but we're not really interested in the in the world. Um, so yeah, the ignorant reader. I don't know. We should say more about Gradus because he is pretty fascinating character. So in his youth, they mentioned uh, in the youth they mentioned he decided that he was going to beat up a local kid who won a motorcycle, but then he just like fell asleep and the guy got away scot free. <laughs> <laughs> no, the guy got then... away, but he also beat the shit out of the other two guys. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got he got married, but his wife died, so he lived in sin with his mother-in-law, and then eventually I tried know. to his mother-in-law right, and then had to be put into a home, <laughs> oh. right? And then he tried and to and then later castrate himself. Later he yeah. pulls out something. Oh God, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I was just gonna say about the mother-in-law. He had kept something of the mother's mother-in-laws. He had like a glass eye he had made for her or something. Something weird like that. Yeah. Oh, but had, then, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Please go on about the castration. Because that was fascinating. <laughs> I think it's described as an attempted castration that freed him of the... Uh, that's where, where I learned oh, that word, yeah. the, the, to invagle, right? Um, and so he eventually got an infection was and, and, and was fine. Here's a line about him. Uh, he might be termed a Puritan. One essential dislike, form- formidable in its simplicity, pervaded his dull soul. He disliked injustice and deception. He disliked their union. They were always together, with a wooden passion that neither had nor needed words to express itself. Such a dislike should have deserved praise had it not been a byproduct of the man's hopeless stupidity. He called unjust and deceitful everything that surpassed his understanding. He worshipped general ideas and did so with pedantic aplomb. So that's greatest. (laughs) Yeah, God. And is there anything about his name being, you know... his name meaning a, a mode of poetic instruction that comes into this. Yes, yeah, the they, they extrapolate on his name with that Vino Gratis bit. I can't quite oh, find it. Oh, right, Vino Gratis. There was another name, too. Vino Gratis and... It's like Gradiaccio or something, something that you could abbreviate to be Gratis. Yeah. And then later on, he's John Gray and Jean de... He also has a French name for him, right? There's also what there's also wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it's in there. There's a wonderful part that I can't find. Uh, If someone has a highlighter, I'd want to hear it. It's the part where they mention that like, um, greatest was the kind of guy that wasn't meant to kill anyone important. I think he mentioned you shouldn't point his pea shooter at anyone because he'll mess it up. (laughs) 
Like, he's always just, like, fumbling things. <laughs> and, of course, at the end, he... F well, didn't they tell yeah. him at one point to not do it? When he was in Paris, didn't he get a call? And was told well, not they, to they, do he it? Had f well, he had fucked up. And so they said, ugh, just stop. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't... Was it Paris? I think that he had gone somewhere... Or was it Nice? Yeah, they're trying... Like, he wasn't supposed They're to... trying to have a, um, a hidden, like, a use coded messages, but they're, the both parties were so stupid that they got two different things out of it. One, <laughs> one party thought they were telling him not to do it, and he thought that it meant, like, to take salmon back to the, Austria or something like that. Right. <laughs> I mean, that part was very funny. That part was very, um, uh, uh, God, what's the, what's the word? It was slapstick. Three Stooges. It's kind of like Fargo, you know. These. Uh, yeah, right here at his hotel. No, no, Sorry, I was just go gonna ahead. say the uh, the the kind of the beastie characters that come out. Um, you know, the the really seedy fellas. You know, they usually you know have some kind of all these quirks are just really interesting. For they're not like smooth, slick professional hitmen or something. They're just vile characters, and all that was interesting to me. Um, be, I just want to, uh, <laughs> I just want to throw this one out there about, because we're, since we're on greatest, um, and he had been, um, he had been in the library and visited the washroom a number of times, um, and was obviously just a mess sweating. Like he, just the, the image of this man in my mind with his wrinkled suit. And I'm sure he stinks at this point. And anyway, he says that, uh, he was still groaning and grinding his dentures when he and his brief briefcase reoffended <laughs> the sun. Reoffended the sun. What the fuck? That what a great line. You can't say he just went outside. No, he didn't go outside. Re he reoffended the sun. The sun. <laughs> and oh, I have to admit that when I was walking down the stairs, I was walking down the stairs this morning to go to for a walk, and I was like, I'm gonna go reoffend the sun. <laughs> Later, I'll reoffend um, the moon. I, I just came across this, which I think we were talking about the castration thing, right? Um, he had long stopped right. drinking. He did not go to concerts. Well, rather, let me start here. At his hotel, the beaming proprietor handed him a telegram. It chided him in Danish for leaving Geneva and told him to undertake nothing until further notice. It also advised him to forget his work and amuse himself. But what, save dreams of blood, could be his amusements? He was not interested in sightseeing or seasiding. He had long stopped drinking. He did not go to concerts. He did not gamble. Sexual impulses had greatly bothered him at one time, but that was over. After his wife, a beater in Redugovitra, Redugovitra, I don't know that, had left him with a gypsy lover. He had lived in sin with his mother-in-law until she was removed, blind and dropsical, to an asylum for for decayed widow, widows. I love that. <laughs> Since then, he had tried several times. That she's had dropsy. Several times. <laughs> he, he had tried several times to castrate himself, had been laid up at the Glassman Hospital with a severe infection, and now, at 44, was quite cured of the lust that nature, the grand cheat, puts us into, inveigle us, into propagation. No wonder the advice to amuse himself infuriated him. I think I should break this note here. Why does he say that? I think I should break this note here. At well, okay. There's another moment where he says um, something. This is actually in the poem, though. Uh, 55 in the book, 940. Mm -hmm. Man's life as commentary to abstruse. Unfinished poem. Note for further use. Weird. 
Yeah, that's, yeah. You don't know, I was gonna say, yeah, I, I never knew if that was, um, a place maker, a, a place marker, or if it was left unfinished. But it sort of, if it was a, a, a marker, then it breaks the 999 structure of It's totally there. And it's, it's almost as if he's yeah, like and about to abandon. And even that note for further use, just by an E, it's almost like not for further use. Like this is a scrap idea, or this whole project is done. Um, this is back to the distrust. And it, he, the the fourth wall is breaking a cu- broken a couple times in the very beginning when uh, Kimbata introduces the poem and he says, "Canto the second canto, your favorite." Like he enjoins us, says your, and he's right. It is, the, I think, the best one. It's the one where his daughter dies. It's the liveliest part of the poem. Okay, last bit on sorry, last bit on greatest for me. More on uh, uh, so greatest in the in the index greatest Jakob. So 1915 to 1959, he was only 44. So that's, I mean, I'm, I'm not reading that from here. And basically, I'm just saying, like, I thought that he was older. Anyway, alias, Jack Degree, DeGray, DeArgus, Vino Gratis, Lenin Gratis. So I think that mm. that was... Um, so what was, uh, what was, how did you define Gratis initially? In t- about the poem, the reading poems? Oh, earlier we were we were talking about. What was the definition of greatest that you oh, gave initially? Um, it's uh, it was a device that they used to teach uh, people to make verse in Latin and Greek. Mm. That's the you know the okay. dictionary definition. Yeah, well, so I'm trying to put this together because in, in some sense he's a function, right? He's you know the device by which John Shade is going to be assassinated. That's his literary function. And uh, I don't remember exactly where it was, but there were times when they talked about his gun in an um, in a very thinly veiled reference to Chekhov's gun. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, I hadn't thought <laughs> that, that, but yeah, smart, yeah. And I wonder if him not being able to amuse himself has something to do, if Nabokov is saying something about interpretation there and about the way that we might read some of this in that, you know, if if we think about Gratis as a function and that, you know, he's got one ultimate mission in this book, and that's to pull off this thing of killing John Shade, you know, for, for Kinboat anyway, then um, everything else that he might do is sort of, you know, sidelined, right? You know, if you think about him as a function rather than a character. And so I'm wondering if like some of that is like kind of poking fun at that way of thinking of him just as a literary advice and... uh you know, talking about, well, what might he do in the yeah. time when he's all through this book, you know, having to do something, you know, just waiting to perform this one act. He's, um, because he, he's so inept as well. Yeah. I got, I'll read it just a last line of the greatest. Um, oh, surely greatest is active, capable, helpful, often indispensable. At the foot of the scaffold on a raw and gray morning, it is greatest who sweeps the night's powder or snow off the narrow steps. But his long, leathery face will not be the last one the man who must mount those steps is to see in the world. And all this is as, is as it should be. The world needs greatest, but greatest should not kill kings. Vino greatest should never, never provoke God. Leaden greatest should not aim his pea-shooter at people, even in dreams. Because if he does, a pair of colossally thick, abnormally hairy arms will hug him from behind and squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> Well. <laughs> I'm glad they're here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god. 
Yeah, I think there's something there. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but he's. I think he's saying something. Yeah, that sounds like the early origin of this guy. Like, that's his kind of, uh, that's maybe like a trauma that he's, uh, I don't know, like, where does the killer come from? You know, like, what's that moment? Um, and what's their life like? And I think that that fear and dream of hairy arms, I mean, that's so specific. You know, just squeezing the life yeah. out of you. Well, it tells you, too, that he's, you know, he may be playing a part, you know, he may be, you know, a function, but he's also a person, you know, every character is also a person. And if we want to just, like, skip over their motivations and view them in this sort of instrumental way, then we're sort of deliberately avoiding, you know, this deeper story that's just right there waiting to be discovered. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I I joked earlier yeah. that, you know, this guy's basically a MacGuffin. You know, that's what the name would mean too. If it was a if it was a way to get you to tell the story, right? Like a guy that's coming to kill you. Okay, that's gonna that's gonna inspire it. Think about him. He's coming. You know what I mean? That's the tension. Um, but you know, there really is something there with that character. And I think that whenever people do that, it's it would be easy to say, oh, okay, well, it's a literary device name. I got it, and then stop looking further. But whenever you do, you get interesting revelations about them, and you realize that there's something true about their own life, um, and it's not just a device. Yeah, that's great. There was something that um, my, me and my friend uh, often talk about a uh, default uh, on the Joker and the acting and the, the writing around that and the characterization. And one of the things that we always thought was really interesting is that you know he says that he's an agent of chaos, yet every one of his things are so well-timed and executed, it's actually the opposite. And if you stop, if you only listen to what he says, then you'd miss an entire picture that's painted in his actions and the words of his, you know... Um, behavior well i mean don't i've haven't you heard or i think i heard somewhere that someone said that the universe is really ordered chaos it's a paradox or that we um where we look for what the other line apperception of patterns as such so i mean it might all be chaos and we just right. find patterns and things there was something that I really, okay, this is getting back to it. There's um, something I wanted to sketch out, and I think it's from the first canto. It's the White Fountain. Yeah. The White Fountain. Hold on. Uh, you all might is this the he, first he canto? The, uh, I, I think that it is. It starts at 140. Yes, it's the first canto. Okay. And let me just, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around because I have the sections marked out. But um, anyway, here it is. On 29 starting, this is at 150. Wait, what line is it? Line 140? Uh, 150. Uh, 140, yeah, down there at the bottom. There oh, was a sudden a... sunburst in my head. Do you have a page number? Yes, uh, 29. Oh, okay, thanks. 29 and 140. And I'll give you the numbers again as I jump forward. But um, there was a sudden sunburst in my head, and then black night. That blackness was sublime. I felt distributed through space and time, once upon a mountaintop, one hand, under the pebbles of a painting strand, one ear in Italy, one eye in Spain, in caves my blood, and in the stars my brain. There were dull throbs in my Triassic, green, optical spots in upper plasticine, an icy shiver down my stone age, all tomorrows in my funny bone. Uh, age of stone, anyway, messed up the line. But uh, going forward uh, on 47, it picks up at 700. Um, he says, a sun of rubber was convulsed and set, and blood-black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within, cells interlinked within, cells interlinked within one stem, and dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. Uh, and then on 49 at 765, our, our fountain was a signpost and a mark, objectively enduring in the dark, 
strong as a bone, substantial as a tooth, and almost vulgar in its robust truth. And then he says, uh, there's um, a bit more through the canto that I'll just paraphrase, where he, he talks about hearing someone else's dream and that they had in their dream of dying uh, on the table at a hospital seen a white fountain. Uh, this was the report. And so he goes to find this person and looks them up and uh, asks them if they remembered anything. And the person like loves their work, uh, loves John Shade's work as a poet. And so he's like having a hard time talking about this deeply personal experience that he's had in his dream and thinking that it's an objective dream reality, that it's actually a place. And she uh, eventually says, oh, yeah, that was that was all the things I said was true, except for one thing. It was they uh, I said now it was a pr- mispronunciation. And then he's like, well, fuck. I really thought that I was onto something, and then he realizes that that was the trick. That it was the it was better that it wasn't actually the same thing, but it was the it was the variance that actually said that there was something there. That it was a white fountain and a white mountain, and that there was a mix up at all between these consciousnesses. And he thinks that he hits on something, and that is, um, I think, this faint hope that he carries throughout the second and third, and even the fourth canto at the end, where he uh, he finishes by saying that he hopes that you know time will be redistributed and his darling is still alive somehow and you know he may see her again. Yeah, like all that meaning just came from a simple mistake, and yet when he ran with it, you know there was so much there. Yeah, this is it. So all this is his um his conception, his what he calls a private universe, and this is in the fourth canto at the very end on fifty six. It's uh, nine sixty um, or nine eighty. There's a misprint in this book. Um, 980. Um, I feel I understand existence, or at least a minute part of my existence, only through my art, in terms of combinational delight. And in my private universe, if my private universe scans right, so does the verse of galaxies divine, which I suspect is an iambic line. I'm reasonably sure that we survive and that my darling somewhere is alive. You know, I heard that, or I read somewhere, and it was in one of my emails that, uh, his wife said that the poem was about the afterlife, death and the afterlife. And that's what I think the White Fountain is getting at. I think it's this, uh, this other reality that is also, um, if you can believe in it, kind of the truth that this uh, whole thing is speaking about. When they talk about the dialectics of things, it may not be true, but it, it hints at something. And it's what they, and especially that first canto, what he went through thinking that there was, oh my God, there's really ghosts. Someone really saw a ghost. And it's like, no, it wasn't really the same thing. But the difference told the truth, that there that there was inner subjectivity, I suppose. Maybe an inner subjective truth. Right. And is it any less true than, you know? No. Right. Though the poem ends a little differently, though it ends a little bit hopefully on 990, and I won't read it here, but um, he says, you know, he's going to put the his poems back up on the shelf, and that would be a quaint little ending. But it's not bedtime yet. And he has this moment looking out the window and he sees someone with an empty wheelbarrow trembling up the lane. And that's what we're left with, really, is this, again, this kind of lingering uh, horizontal search at the end of a vertical search, I believe, going back to the moviegoer. Um, and, and just to bring up a lot of other things that we've read, there's also uh, um, the Grand Inquisitor is in here. All is allowed. Um, there's also from the fall, a hero of our time. That's quoted on 68. Um, he he cites a lot of things and a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of yeah. he even cited the Yankees, right? I mean, I think, right? I mean, it's amazing how, the amount of things that he brings up. 
Browning. Yeah, the Yankees in Boston ticket. He describes it as some sort of sporting event. Or <laughs> he's so out of touch with Americana. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God, Aunt Maud's scrapbook. His description of Aunt Maud's uh, scrapbook is so funny. That one made that made me laugh the hardest. Oh, <laughs> well, should we get down to final thoughts and uh, maybe the yes. best lines? Well, favorite lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see. Does anybody have any final thoughts though? Just before, just I know we kind of like went around the bend just now, but maybe there's a last thing that's. Absolutely, um, absolutely. We've gone around the bend. Going alphabetical. Oh, oh, that's that's a good convention. Uh, Especially that 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 that, that'll work. Okay, great. Oh, that means me then. Oh, (laughs) DC. Yeah, I'm I'm real smart. (laughs) Um, should have proposed reverse alphabetical, but next time. I um I really I really like this book, and um it wasn't the most enjoyable book but in its scope of what it was trying to do it was really incredible and i'm somewhat okay with that observer article that named it the greatest novel because it had such incredible scope it you know it let us feel compassion with a character while at the same time you know feeling repulsed by feeling some you know for wanting to hear the eviler character kimbate's story it uh it made us think about the act of reading while allowing us to get lost into this incredibly vivid story that's concocted by Kinbate. Um, it allowed us to do so many things uh, and reflect on, you know, reading, life, death, compassion, um, in such a like a meta kind of way. Um, so I found it incredible in that sense. And yeah, Nabokov is a really... Uh, such a gifted writer and like i hate the fact that in his third language he has a better better access of english than i could ever 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 grasp (laughs) yeah i totally echo that i was gonna say exactly the same thing there it 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 really is intimidating to see somebody who you know he, he comes in you know and just trounces you on your own home turf yeah <laughs> but uh but hey you know i mean that's what i was talking to a guy that i work with and you know he he or i work for and he was you know we were talking about like hemingway and stuff and he was saying it you know how much he likes uh hemingway because he likes plain language and it's uh it's really nice to just read a writer who talks to you straightforward and i agree with that but also, I go to literature, I think, for, you know, to see the master's work. You know, I like to see people who really can just go wild and give me fireworks. And, and Nabokov definitely did that in this book. I mean, the architecture of the form, you know, the symmetry between the content and the style and the form. I mean, it was all just so intricate and it gave you a sort of three-dimensional playground in which to chase down all of the loose ends and uh, you know and like Cesari said I think the the sympathy that we're led to sort of cultivate for Kimboat it's you know maybe not right there um, immediately he's sort of repulsive and he's creepy and he's uh, you're not really off the bat led to um, really want to sympathize with him you're sort of aghast but uh, I think uh you are trained to sort of by this book, if you're willing to read it um, a little bit more rigorously, 
And maybe that's part of what he was trying to do. I, I was impressed by that because I think that, uh, I think just by necessity, um, if literature is going to survive, it's got to, I mean, it, it just, it takes more work than television. It takes more work than movies. It takes more work than, you know, more, most forms of passive entertainment these days. And so I think at the same time that it asks us to do um, the work to chase down what it has to offer, it's got to at the same time, sort of hold that carrot out and make us chase that. And this book definitely did that for me. So I was, I was impressed by that. Uh, am I next? I don't, yes. I don't I'm not going to Um. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, I imagine myself uh, in a, si- sitting there with Nabokov and looking at him and going, uh, you know, try, just looking at him, like trying to figure out what, he was doing here because I brought up obviously a lot of the complicating aspects of the structure of the book. Um, and I can just see him if I asked him and said, you know, what the fuck are you doing here? He would just look at me and smile. (laughs) And I think the reason why he would do that is because he wants me to struggle. That's my thought. You know, I, 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 you know, like when I read that his wife said that the poem is about, the afterlife, it's about death. And this whole sort of discussion about the death of Hazel in the poem. Yeah, I never really got in touch with Hazel. Um, but as I say, I, I imagine myself sitting in with Nabokov trying to figure out from him what what the point, why he did it this way. Because um, the poem is, stands alone and it's brilliant. And then there's this commentary which is essentially the novel and um it's by this man who is a creep and um and you know i uh, that is indicated by him watching uh john shade from across the street and other things he said about john shade um that concerned me it's not to me it's not just a matter of being in love with him or in love with his work it just got a little too creepy um but but that said um I, it's a brilliant book, and it's obviously he's a brilliant writer, and he and I'm I'm thrilled to have read it. Um, but again, I I just wonder if the challenge that Nabokov put to me as the reader, he's saying, you know, he's it's kind of like he wants me to suffer. He wants me, <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt. I felt you want me to suffer, and 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 in a way, that's right. If you think about it, if you look at a Picasso painting, you look at a Van Gogh, you look at some some you know, amazing painting, you know, the, the painter wants you to suffer. He wants you to fucking feel, you know what I'm saying? Not just go, Oh, I'm so happy. I'm so relaxed. This puts me at peace. He wants you to feel. And, and in order to feel you have to suffer. So I think that's what his goal was here. And I, I think he does a brilliant job of it. And it's just brilliant. And I mean, and I've read, and I know I, I emailed this to you guys too, but I mean, pretty much a lot of the secondary sources I read, the discussions from the Nabokov uh, scholars and stuff, have all said they feel this is the great, the, his greatest work, if not the greatest novel of the 20th century, uh, along with Ulysses. And so, I mean, think about why, why they say that. I mean, it's fascinating. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I suffered and I'm glad I did. <laughs> <laughs> I... Um didn't suffer i'm sorry to say Um, which makes me think that i just wasn't paying attention um i felt i I never almost never because i'm gonna right now use the word genius but i when i was reading it i thought dear lord 
uh, I am in the presence of a genius. And I felt like it was just an amazing ride. And I, you know, I, I've been really busy lately and I didn't have enough, like I felt like I didn't have enough of myself to put into it to, um, to go all the places that you guys all obviously went. But I really enjoyed it. And, you know, despite the fact that I felt like Kinboat was um, creepy, um, as you know, I, I do feel like uh, it's somewhat current because privacy issues are so intense now. Um, and he obviously <laughs> had no consideration for anyone's privacy. But I also felt that just the tremendous longing, and I think that that was the... I mean, there was, you know, the tremendous longing with Hazel to just, you know, to be loved, um, to be accepted, um, the longing with Kinboat to be, uh, you know, first to be <laughs> loved by his people, to be able to have um, the life that he wanted to live as uh, homosexual, um, you know, and then, but, you know, all of the, his exile and everything. I felt all of that. Uh, very deeply, I thought that it was that it was really gorgeous, and the language was just so rich. I mean, that was the other thing. It's like I'd get home and I'd like, oh, I'm so excited, you know, and like jump in bed and start reading. And it'd just be like, oh, it's like I don't know. It's it's like eating a bowl of cream or something. It's just incredibly rich to have that that language, um, and. Uh, yeah, I really loved it, and I will read more of the secondary literature when I next have a moment. Nate? Well, uh, it's um, easy to agree with a lot of what's been said, so, um, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to find out where my new vein is. I mean, <laughs> the first, uh, Cesario, I would agree, it's not the, it wasn't initially the most interesting thing that I'd read, but the complexities began to intrigue me, and unfortunately for my, uh, I, I didn't give it the time to pace everything out maniacally like I might have having the book open. Um, if I could have found two copies and realized that I should have, I might have got two copies um, to read side by side on this. Um, but it was, uh, there was a lot of really beautiful uh, just words, um, language in it at the end and throughout the poem. So, I, you know, at first I was hoping that that there I would get more of that forward voice. And, uh, and then the poem came along and there was just equal richness in there apart from the surprise that this is a fictional Appalachian character you know and that strikes home to me um you know uh, growing mm -hmm. up in the Appalachians so right. I, I was drawn in and I wonder about the real story here if how in the world did Novikov have interest in this was there really some kind of refugee population in the 1950s living in the Appalachian you know I, I just uh, I wonder about um the reality of it all but that's just for me to do I, you know I'm not going to find an answer um I'll just add an interesting biographical tidbit being that um, Nabokov, um, when he first started writing uh, Russian literature as an expatriate in Berlin and Paris, was heavily criticized by a, a famous uh, Russian expatriate critic for being a terrible writer. And so he started to release poems under a pseudonym called Siren. And that same critic started lauding Siren as a great, oh, wonderful yeah. poet. <laughs> and then Na Nabokov, for the rest of his career, kept having funny, like he would make imaginary interviews with Nabokov and Siren, and like kept that joke going for years. <laughs> it's 
serial Spider-Man <laughs> and Peter Parker thing going on. It <laughs> uh, tells yeah. you what, where he was at. But it's also interesting to, uh, you know, to see that duality in Nabokov releasing his poetry through the character of John Shade. His very American, um, like the, the poem has a lot of Americana in it, right? It's very... Yeah, the Yankees. So you want to do uh, favorite lines? You want to go uh, reverse order this time? And I have yeah, uh, Nathan we could, start? Yeah, I was thinking that exactly. I was thinking that that would be a great idea. Um, <laughs> mine comes from 69. Uh, this is uh, the, near the bottom of the page, and this is more of the the creepiness, which I find just delightful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so here it is, and this is him talking about watching John Shade. Incidents of perspective and lighting, interference by framework or leaves, usually deprive me of a clear view of his face, and perhaps nature arranged it that way so as to conceal from a possible predator the mysteries of generation. But sometimes when the poet paced back and forth across his lawn, or sat down for a moment on the bench at the end of it, or paused under his favorite hickory tree, I could distinguish the expression of passionate interest, rapture, and reverence, with which he followed the images wording themselves in his mind. And I knew that whatever my agnostic friend might say in denial, at that moment, our Lord was with him. So pretty. Um... I'm going to apologize because mine's a little long. <laughs> I'll apologize first. Okay. Uh, this is on page 221. The ideal drop is from an aircraft. Your muscles relaxed. Your pilot puzzled. Your patch parachute shuffled off, cast off, shrugged off. Farewell, Shutka, little shoot. Down you go. But all the while you feel suspended and buoyed as you are as you somersault in slow motion like a somnolent tumbler pigeon and sprawl supine on the eider down of the air or lazily turn to embrace your pillow enjoying every last instant of soft deep death padded life with the earth's green seesaw now above now below and the voluptuous crucifixion as you stretch yourself in the glow growing rush in the nearing swish and then your loved body's obliteration in the lap of the Lord. If I were a poet, I would certainly make an ode to the sweet urge to close one's eyes and surrender utterly into the perfect safety of wooed death. Ecstatically, one forefeels the vastness of the divine embrace enfolding one's liberated spirit, the warm bath of physical dissolution, the universal unknown engulfing the minuscule unknown that has been the only real part of one's temporary personality. And then I'll skip two paragraphs and say, We who burrow in filth every day may be forgiven perhaps the one sin that ends all sins. I love Whoa. that. I love that line. I love the whole thing. Yeah. I highlighted that line. I also um, like, wow. really, <laughs> there were a couple of little phrases. He talked about a guy whose mind was a library and not a debating hall. And I thought that was really brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, I'll leave it at that. I've, I've blabbed enough about my favorites. <laughs> all right, I have two, actually. First of all, I'm reading the last line, and I'm going to read the last line every time we do this, because... I'm. I have a history of not finishing books because I don't like to end things, which is a psychological problem that I'm talking to therapists about. But, but we're glad to help by making you finish the books, Laura. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, it's like it's like when well, you know, like remember that show Friends? I would not. I refuse to watch the last. Episode. I refuse to watch the first you know, one. I just don't watch- 
or any in the in between. I don't blame you. Any in between? Yeah, I don't blame you. But I'm just saying that. But I had kids, you know. You know, it all happens. But anyway, I'm I'm just saying that that I just don't like to finish shit. But I'm doing it for you. Thank you. (laughs) And this this is the last line. Um, and this is what it says. But whatever happens. Wherever this scene is laid, somebody, somewhere, will quietly set out. Somebody has already set out. Somebody still rather far away is buying a ticket, is boarding a bus, a ship, a plane, has landed, is walking toward a million photographers, and presently he will ring at my door, a bigger, more respectable, more competent greatest. And I'm thinking that what's important... Here, and then I'll read you my totally favorite line. That was just the last line. Um, is the way it ends. I mean, it's always, given that I hate endings, um, it's fascinating to me how the choice a given writer makes in the way they end something. And I think that because when, you, when you're writing, because I'm also a writer, I, you, you, it's important to know where the hell you're going. And and really, for like really good writers or really like um, functioning writers, unlike myself, um, they they know the ending before they know the beginning, and they've written the ending before they've written the beginning, and that's true with movies as well. But anyway, it's interesting. I think we should always read the last line so we can get a sense of what they did, and then think about why the hell did they end it this way. But it's interesting that the last word in this book is greatest. I mean, putting aside the index, obviously. Um, anyway, this is my favorite line. It's from page 25 in the Kindle version. This friendship was the more precious for its tenderness being intentionally concealed. He's talking about his friendship with John Shade. Especially when we were not alone. By that gruffness which stems from what can be termed the dignity of the heart. His whole being constituted a mask. And I'm just thinking, this whole fucking book is a mask. I mean, think about what masks are. But anyway, we can talk about that another time. Go on. <laughs> yeah, well, that kind of leads into where I was going. Um, I'm going to go cliche here and go with the very beginning of the poem. Um, the, f- the first two lines, especially. I was the shadow of the waxwing slain by the false azure of the window pane. I was the smudge of ashen fluff, and I lived on, flew on in the reflected sky. And from inside, too, I duplicate myself my lamp, an apple on a plate. Uncurtaining the night, I'd let dark glass hang all the furniture above the grass. And it goes on. But I think, you know, I love those first two lines. And I think they sort of gain resonance. You know, the more you read the book, you can come back to them over and over and you see more. And it just sort of refracts in on itself. You know, it, it duplicates itself over and over. And you see, you know, these new new meanings within the context of uh, more you've read and more you've understood. And it's just sort of uh, telescopes. It's, it's, and then they just have a sort of pure aesthetic beauty, I think as, as a opening to a poem, they're definitely going to sit in my memory. As I understand it, those, the first two lines are cons- probably the most famous of Nabokov's work. That's what I've heard. Yeah. I've had them in my head all week. It's beautiful. Who's left? Oh, Cesare. This guy. I got two quick ones, I think. Uh, more lighthearted, because I think I already read all my serious ones. But uh, on page mm-hmm. 141, <laughs> the, 
This is when he's trying, when uh, John, Shade, and his wife are trying to escape to like a mountain cabin, and he's confronted <laughs> with uh, with uh, Kinbati. He's trying to find out where. Hmm. So he just says, I started to calculate aloud in meters the altitude that I thought much too high for John's heart, but Sybil pulled him by the sleeve, reminding him that they were, had more shopping to do, and I was left with about 2,000 meters and a Valerian-flavored oh, bird. <laughs> so it's just such a great exposition on, like, the, the way he introduces the character, uh, you mentioned the term genius, Mary, and I totally agree, because if I ever thought to, like, make a character, I would, like, describe, I could never describe or put information about him in such a subtle incredible way like you just see how crazy he is in that one paragraph <laughs> the other thing i was uh gonna read is on page 181 uh here it is and this is personally i have not known any lunatics but i've heard of several amusing cases in ui there was, for instance, a student who went berserk. There was an old, tremendously trustworthy college porter who, one day, in the projection room, showed a squeamish co-ed something of which he had no doubt seen better example- samples. <laughs> but my favorite case is that of an Exton Railway employee whose delusion was described to me by Mrs. H, of all people. And I'll skip down a bit and says... Um, you must help us, Mr. Combate. I maintain that what's his name? Old The old man, you know... At the Exton railway station, who thought he was God and began, began redirecting the trains, was technically a loony, but John calls him a fellow poet. So I love that line for two reasons, the way that he describes uh, a girl getting flashed in, in the way he does. <laughs> and of the, uh, of the dichotomy between a crazy person who thinks he's God and can redirect you know, reality and John calling that poetry. <laughs> Yeah, and isn't that the point when they he's wow. actually caught him talking about him? Yeah, it's great. Well, um, I'd also be interested to know what you guys have as recommendations of anything else that you're reading or um, uh, maybe you've seen recently even, you know? All right, I'll go. Um, I've been watching Jessica Jones. I don't know if anybody I've heard it's good. Is it really it's good? It's really good. And the main character it looks exactly like my daughter, so you'll know what she looks like. Um but it's it's really good. I mean, part of it made me feel like uh, that it may be this may be a whole sort of discussion of um, the horrors of a relationship between a man and a woman. Um, but you know, because it's this whole superhero thing, there's a lot of other stuff involved in it. But anyway, it's really good, and it's uh, very very um, you know adult. I um, picked up a book. <clears throat> someone wrote for the. Uh, did an essay uh, for the PEL website, a uh, guy named Mark Anderson. Uh, they published a few chapters from his book, and I liked them, so I picked up the book, and it's called Moby Dick as Philosophy, Plato, Melville, Nietzsche. And I, ju- I started it. Um, it's really, really good. <laughs> it's really good so far. Um, I've only gotten in about uh, chapter and a half, but I love it so far, and I really like the other things that he's written on the website. So he, I think he has three posts up, so they're all very worth reading. Well worth reading. Cool. Yeah, I saw that, and that initially made me want to read Moby Dick when I yeah. read, uh, read his post. Yeah, we should do that at some point. <laughs> at some point I was just yeah. thinking about how to structure it, and I, I think that maybe for 
uh, we'd have to look at it, but perhaps we could do regular novels, but read section by section, maybe chapter by chapter as a short story um, in between for a series of That's cool. Um, um, well, that would be rough because it's 136 it. yeah. chapters. <laughs> there are a lot of really short yeah. chapters oh, in Moby God. Dick. <laughs> and aren't some of them like very much just like whale rendering and that's it? Whale rendering. They're all, <laughs> they're all fantastic. I yeah, I, I love the whole book, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> um, yeah, I, that would be a rough way to do it. I think that you could probably do, you know, section, you know, a quarter of the book. You know, you could do it by number of pages mm-hmm. i think it's 600 pages maybe we could do like we could do three 200 page reads but i don't know it doesn't, We've done it doesn't really it doesn't really make sense to do it that way i think it might just be something that um we'd have to you know all of us have time and buckle down yeah yeah, yeah I think I, that, um, maybe I, we can accomplish that whenever we've got a little bit more uh latitude in our schedules next year um, yeah but um after march it can't uh, be more to swallow than ulysses was. no it's definitely not it's definitely, I mean, it's not difficult that way. You don't have to figure out. We could do it. Um, Cesare, what are you reading? Uh, or watching? I guess I must have had a lot of free time, because I, I went, uh, I read Speak Memory, and I highly recommend that as an autobiography, and that's coming from someone who hates autobiographies. Ooh, me too. Um, <laughs> it's complete, it's, it's incredibly unique, and so, um, it's unique in the sense that he pulls apart threads in his life and just goes along it with like a literary theme of, you know, the force of his childhood, his love of butterflies and uh, like life as a chess problem. It's, it's incredible, really. And, and he's just a fascinating figure whose family like dates back to 14th century Russian nobility. So <laughs> uh, I also, wow. Wow. I think oh. it, it mentions that uh, one of his relatives was a second in uh, Pushkin's fatal duel that eventually uh, had him shot and killed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And um, um, I've also read Pnin, another one of his books, which is uh, more lighthearted and hilarious. I'd also recommend that. Um, if you're reading the audiobook, make sure that whoever is narrating Pnin has a heavy Russian accent, because that's a really funny part of the book. <laughs> 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 and then uh, what I, I really recommend, Best of Enemies, as I mentioned, I think someone else recommended it last time. I thought it was an incredible uh, sort of pseudo-documentary. And uh, lastly, I'm trying to get through uh, Nietzsche's, Walter Kaufman's Nietzsche, which I didn't, I guess I, I just didn't understand much about Nietzsche until I read that. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't realize how much of a me- I didn't realize how much of a medical phys- metaphysical system that Nietzsche sort of had. I always like what I liked about him more than that was the sort of you know quotable tidbits. Well, that's not anything to sneeze at. <laughs> oh, I haven't had time to read much, but a bunch of stuff for my literature class. Some of which has been Hamlet, good. right? Yeah, I've been reading a lot of Hamlet, and uh, you know, I've actually enjoyed it. No, it isn't. Uh, you know, I've I've enjoyed it. It's it's been work, but it's it's had its rewards. So um, I, I'm always sort of I I feel two ways about Shakespeare on the stage. I mean, it's depending on the play. I mean, the language can be almost impossible to follow. So, and most of the plays are really long. So it's easy in even sort of modernized adaptations to get bored. And uh, you know, maybe I'm just a philistine, but but I find reading it on the page a lot more fun. You know, I, I saw an ad. I saw an ad for um, Macbeth, a movie 
of Macbeth? Yeah, I didn't even know. I didn't hear about that until just a, yesterday. A movie or a movie yeah, about a play? Yeah, I, I, I didn't either until I saw this. It's weird. I was surprised. Huh. No, it's a... No, it's a movie. It's actual, like, you know, you know, it's a real mo- a movie. It's a movie yeah. of Macbeth. It's Macbeth, the movie. Right. I, it's not Macbeth the I think flight. I... And isn't it Michael Fassbender <laughs> plays Macbeth? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. yeah. I think I know the distinction. <laughs> and what was that? And I think... In a world. And what's his name? Well, who's <laughs> Where that Michael actor that's in that Macbeth. Netflix show? That guy that you does know, the movies, too, sometimes? You know, that Netflix Oh. <laughs> the House of Cards. Yeah, the House of Cards. that guy. Yeah, he started oh, Kevin Spacey. here in, in, at the Brooklyn, um, oh, I think he was in Brooklyn, at Brooklyn Theater. Um, and I think, and I, I, it looked really good. I never was unable, wasn't able to get tickets for it, but I hope it's been, it was filmed. I assume hmm. it was filmed. I'm going to search for it. Well, you know, it's, um, I love her it's funny you mentioned uh, yeah, me too. that Jessica Jones show, the guy who's the villain on that, I think, is... Uh, David Tennant. David Tennant. And the only version yeah, of is. Hamlet that I've ever seen that I just thought was a really yeah, great film version. I saw that. It was amazing. Hamlet, it was really good. he was good. fucking amazing. I mean, he yeah. just carried I, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. When did yeah. he do it? It was like yeah, 2009. He was incredible. He's also Mary? my oh, favorite wow. Doctor Who. <laughs> he is. <laughs> so you didn't um, like the Mel Gibson version? Nature. Oh, okay. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is Doctor Who. Oh, well, I'm, I'm not reading very much. And as, as I mentioned, I didn't finish uh, uh, this book, so I didn't have more. I didn't take more time to, to read. I've been trying to write more lately. But uh, since we recommended Jessica Jones, I'll recommend the Marvel Universe counterpart that's also on Netflix and is very good, Daredevil. Um, Daredevil Dare- is great. Okay, great. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, Vincent I D'Onofrio is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, the show, he steals the show, and it's uh, worth just watching to see him perform. Um, and you know character. what's funny is that they all take place in Hell's Kitchen, which is just here in New York. Yeah, and I can't speak about Jessica Jones, but the reality of a superhero universe, it's completely real. And the struggles of yeah. the characters, um, on one side this guy being a lawyer, and the other side trying to right. be a vigilante working where the law is failing and where the law is you know, too powerful in other hands. It's interesting because he's an ethical hero, and... Um, Right. And I hear that there's a second season coming out soon that's going to have the there Punisher is. as the right. villain. And so having someone who doesn't kill people paired with a guy that uses punishment right. as law, I think is going to be very interesting. Yeah. Um, and they yeah, handle these, curious. they handle all these topics really well within the story. And it's also yeah, the action right. is fun to watch Daredevil. and it's beautiful. So I'm glad they're good, but Jesus, I thought I'm it was excellent like superhero stuff. <clears throat> I just like, <laughs> like had it up <laughs> well, over well over my head. No, I totally agree. I want a regular fucking yeah, hero, no, okay? Totally they have to be super. <laughs> You'll you get it here. I think that um, I think the cool thing about what they did with Daredevil and what I think that they did with um, Batman was take uh, take it down to the ground and show how a regular person could become something as uh, fantastical as a supernatural person, um, but making it completely real. <laughs> a regular person who knows a lot of karate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't have a family, right. you know. He's got a lot of free time. I have a question because you were just ta- you're talking about autobiography, and I'm sitting in front of my bookshelves, and I was thinking, I really, I really don't, I don't like to read nonfiction very much since I've done it. I read so much nonfiction when I work. Um, so when I'm reading at home, I don't like to. But um, I have like three lined up that I think are three of the best books that I've ever read, and one is the um, Pablo Casals' Joys and Sorrows. Uh, one um, is Daughters and Rebels by Jessica Mitford, and then uh, Miles Davis's Miles. <laughs> mm. 
which if you've never read Miles Davis's book, it you know, I mean, Amazing Life and boy, you'll laugh, <laughs> cry. you might try opiates. <laughs> you'll definitely want to play an instrument. Miles. But anyway, I don't know. Have you guys I ever tried... read any of those? No, no. Read the... very interesting. Yeah. No. I tried to order it and Amazon the told Pablo me they Casals all have it. is so. also really gorgeous. The jo- Joy of Bands. What? Uh, what was that called? Oh, no. Joy, joys, and, joy and, joys and Sorrows. Different stories, yeah. Pablo Casals. The oh, okay. Never mind. I'm getting these mixed up then. <laughs> you were thinking of the other one that you mar- uh, recommended maybe a time or two ago, Mary. It was um, Joy of Man's Desiring. Oh, right. Jean, yeah, Jean Gilles, yeah. Joy of Man's Desiring. Beautiful book. Yeah, Amazon told me to screw off. <laughs> We can end it right here and cut out the last 10 seconds of what I said to myself, Nathan. In the future, Nathan, do more stuff. Exercise a little bit. Um, why don't you eat? You haven't eaten today. Um, anyway, take care of yourself, one and all. And uh, thanks for reading. Okay, got to put in fade out music here. And we're clear. <laughs>